Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. On the program of March 22nd, I referred to Love Actually, the movie, and 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. And the program really was from Love Actually to 13 Hours. But on that same day, March 22nd, there was an occurrence, if you will, near Parliament in London. You might refer to it as an Islamist terrorist attack that resulted in the deaths of a number of people and grave injuries to many others. One that was murdered was a policeman. And the policemen in the United Kingdom typically are unarmed because, well, you know, having our police armed with any kind of weapon, uh, that might actually provoke violence. Some would say. But what I was referring to was the notions put forth by Richard Curtis and his ilk that seemingly the appropriate response to vicious, ruthless, monstrous murderers is just, in essence, to ignore that, (laughs) shut that out, compartmentalize at all cost, and focus on the positive things in life and not address the evil, not address the destroyers, not do anything to protect and defend and safeguard and ward off evil. Now, I happen to think that Richard Curtis is a very talented fellow, very talented writer, filmmaker. I do take issue with his... Undue affection for dirty language. Uh, But enough on that. I don't know if you happen to see that uh, Jackie Kennedy Onassis's uh, letter, one of her letters, was auctioned for a goodly sum, 120,000 or something like that. And This was a letter that she wrote to a man who asked her to marry him. And it was a letter of declination of his marriage proposal and a type of explanation, questionable explanation in my mind, 
uh, and defense of the man whom she chose instead of him, namely uh, billionaire Ari Onassis, Aristotle Onassis. But the reason I mention this, uh, this letter of Jackie's, is I had uh, thought that, you know, we really had, of course, back then it was Camelot. The Kennedys in the White House, it was Camelot, courtesy of the major media elite, who glorified John and Jackie and who ran interference for John and kept the citizenry completely unaware of what he did and what was going on at the White House, uh, his carryings on, and the actual status of their marriage and so on and so forth. And so there was this glorious, gilded age Camelot with the Kennedys in the White House, which, of course, was very, very short-lived, tragically. But I I can't help but think that we, in essence, have Camelot 2.0 now with the Donald and the fabulous, is that okay to use that term for the First Lady? The fabulous First Lady, fabulous beauty, Melania Trump, glamorous woman that she is. So to me, it is a bit of that. And yet, interestingly enough, uh, they are not being treated that way, <laughs> which uh, is a good thing, is a good thing in my view. But, but nonetheless, you would think that, well, you know, if the media could manage to knock themselves out, fall all over themselves with adulation of John and Jackie, you'd think maybe there could be a scintilla of that towards <laughs> uh, a first family with Melania Trump as the first lady. And uh, that is not the case. Uh, interestingly enough, not the case. We do not have the adulation uh, or the idolatry and the complicity by the major media elites in enabling the first family. Rather, we have the opposite. Uh, They are enabling the takedown of the Donald, uh, is the way it seems to me. But perhaps you saw something about this matter of Jones v. Clinton, the 1997 unanimous Supreme Court ruling that executive privilege does not shield or protect a sitting president from lawsuits filed against him for private misconduct. Now, within that ruling, the Supreme Court did make a provision that Congress could, if they chose, 
create protection for the president. And so there is that slim possibility out there that perchance the White House could manage to rally enough troops, as it were, to give the president a stronger hand so that he might enjoy protection, executive privilege, immunity, call it what you will, from the spate of civil lawsuits that he is facing. The <laughs> At the time that the ruling was delivered, but months prior, because when cases are heard before the Supreme Court, on their day before the August Court, the counsels, the lawyers, have their say before the judges. The judges, who have the opportunity to manipulate them every which way they care to and love to play games with the lawyers whom they don't care for or who are representing the sides they don't care for. Yes, our incredibly objective Supreme Court does engage in all kinds of political games and political theater, but so far as being able to, in essence, quash what this council or that council has to say by simply heading them off at the pass and basically not allowing them to talk. But uh, they will hear a case on one day and then months and months later after ruminating on it and after covertly collaborating behind the scenes and so forth, get together and they will come up with their inestimable rulings. Well, one counsel who was directly involved in that was the now husband of Kellyanne Conway. And I believe it was he that wrote... Uh, he, he wrote the brief he, uh, regarding uh, this as far as for Jones, for Paula Jones. and But he wrote uh, some op-ed pieces. And he stated that, you know, that we <laughs> ought not provide this special protection for the president because this is not a monarchy. This is not an autocracy. This is not an oligarchy. This is a democracy. This is a republic, a federal republic, a federal republic, which I actually referred to Russia <laughs> by that, that term, that title, uh, the Russian Federation. So, but uh, back to that in a moment. But in any case, that we ought not to provide that. And he was speaking versus 
former President Clinton, who was such a, a fabulous president and who was president, sitting president at that time. Uh, and the Jones side actually remarkably prevailed with a unanimous decision. Paula Jones, who was vilified, her integrity, her character assassinated by the Clinton White House under the leadership, the direction of that champion of women, of women's rights and of children, Hillary Rodham Clinton. She ran point on that. She was in charge of the politics of personal destruction to destroy, to vilify, to slander, to shame, to humiliate, and to publicly destroy Paula Jones, not to mention to intimidate, and all of the others who came forth. But I digress. So there is, despite that unanimous decision, there is right Within the folds of that decision, there is a proviso that a president can attempt to employ by garnering enough support in Congress to have himself made more nearly a monarch. <laughs> which hopefully won't happen. I don't have any expectation that that will happen, but uh, especially given the uh, conservative caucus who rose up, rose up and who were, I might add, uh, strongly supported, encouraged uh, by the Koch brothers. But they rose up to deny the president this repeal replacement of abominable Obamacare. Now, what was good about denying that repeal and replacement? Just this, that the replacement was altogether too much like what it was replacing. (laughs) It was woefully inadequate as a replacement. It was something that would permit the president to say, see, I kept my promise. I did that. I did that within the first hundred days. Check that off the list. You know, that major, major agenda item. When in fact, what was being put forth as a replacement was not fit to be the replacement because it did not begin to sufficiently undo the wrongs done by Obamacare. Obamacare, which was deliberately crafted in such a way as to merely be the forerunner of completely, utterly, totally socialized medicine. just as the Equal Rights Amendment was crafted to be the forerunner of what we have now, even though the Equal Rights Amendment was not passed, was not confirmed 
despite the hook and crook tactics employed by then president, trust me, Jimmy Carter. Do you remember that line? Trust me. Just trust me. <laughs> it's the same thing employed by Obama. You know, hey, let's not be concerned about the details of anything. It's like Nancy Pelosi with the matter of the Assured Care Act. Well, no, we haven't read it yet. We don't know what's in it. Oh, so that will have to wait. Just trust us to trust our great leader here that he knows what's best for us. Just as the American people, the parents across this nation, have now for decade upon decade upon decade upon decade upon decade upon decade been trusting the federal regimes that have ruled over them to educate their children. And what have they done to educate their children? They have systematically indoctrinated them against their parents, against God, against Jesus Christ, against the Ten Commandments, against faithfulness and virtue and fidelity and honor and honesty. And they have done that day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And teachers that have opposed that have been run out of education, have been denied tenure, have been fired for this reason or that reason. And meanwhile, teachers who have been unspeakable evil influences on children, they have been richly rewarded by their evil leaders. But back to Hillary Rodham Clinton, who absolutely typifies and exemplifies everything that is gravely wrong with this nation. Are there others as bad as her? Absolutely. There's Bill, and there's Barack, and there's Joe, and there's Albert Arnold Gore Jr., and Nancy Pelosi, and so many more. But speaking of Jones v. Clinton, this case that was decided unanimously against then-sitting president, William Jefferson Clinton. Well, apparently, Chelsea Clinton will not be gracing us with running for political office yet. Trust me when I say, (laughs) a la Jimmy Carter, James Earl Carter. Or was it James Earl Carter Jr., I believe? Jimmy Carter. Trust me, she will be running for political office. The only thing that would prevent her running for political office is simply being appointed to extremely high positions. 
which may, in fact, yet be. Coming attractions. No, not coming attractions on this program necessarily, but yes, I will be referring to them in the future. But coming attractions for this nation. What do we have to look forward to in the very, very, very near future? Like it or not, there will be virtual certainty. There will be not only boots on the ground, strike force, strike at North Korea. It will not be limited to something like that. Why will it not be? In order to take out the nuclear threat from dear old Kim as I refer to him, youngin, you know, the youngin, the young gun, the youngin, uh, Kim's monstrous, evil, communist North Korean regime or regime over North Korea. It will not be limited to something like a physical invasion of North Korea. It would be disastrous. It would be absolutely disastrous for the United States of America. Now, whether the Donald cares to marshal some vast coalition, or dare I say confederacy, that's the term that's used in the Bible if you ever care to check on it, but coalition, this vast coalition of allies before we do anything, because we need need the support, the agreement, the acquiescence, the permission of all of the other corrupt governments around the world before we can act, act to protect ourselves. <laughs> but uh, whether the Donald, the tweeter-in-chief, whether he will insist on gathering a vast coalition to go and against North Korea remains to be seen. But this matter of oh, having economic sanctions and political sanctions and whatever other kind of sanctions they want to dream up against North Korea is ridiculous. And the real root problem, though, is this. Uh, there are a number of them, a <laughs> multiplicity of problems. One is this is that North Korea, contrary to what we are told, is not an individual actor. Going back to dear old President W., George W. Bush, we were told that there was this axis of evil, which was comprised of three nations, you know, just like good old axis powers of Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and Hirohito's Japan, Imperial Japan. So here we had a modern-day axis of evil, but instead of them being a couple superpowers and then a not-so-superpower, there were three comparatively minor operators, right? Of which one was North Korea. 
But North Korea is not an individual, and they were all individuals, all individual actors. Well, North Korea has never, ever been an individual actor. Going back to the Korean War, North Korea was more like a division of communist China as far as an army division of communist China or an army division of communist Soviet Union than it was an individual actor or an individual nation. The only reason that North Korea was not defeated and all of Korea unified back then was communist China's boots on the ground and Soviet Union equipment and advisors. It's the only reason. It's the only reason that North Korea was not defeated, vanquished, and there was not a unified democratic Korea. The same, exactly the same was true in Vietnam. The only reason that North Vietnam was not defeated, not vanquished, not routed entirely, and that Vietnam was not unified as a democratic, not democrat, democratic nation, a republic, if you will, as under the leadership of South Korea, South Vietnam, not Korea. The only reason that didn't happen was, guess what? Communist Chinese boots on the ground. Communist Chinese officers, generals running (laughs) so much of that. And communist Soviet Union aircraft, MiG pilots, and ad infinitum. Only difference between Vietnam and Korea was, of course, that we settled for being pushed out altogether and relinquishing it all to the vicious, ruthless, murderous, terrorist communists. So, to go after... North Korea now, we are led to believe that it is this individual actor. We only have to take out North Korea and its million-plus man and woman army and so forth, and Navy. They have the largest submarine force in the world. I'm not saying the most advanced. We're loaded with cruise missiles with nuclear warheads or something like that. I'm not saying that. But they have the largest submarine force in the world. But this idea that we can go in there and take out North Korea while communist China is the parent country to North Korea, in point of fact, and while... The former Soviet Union, Russia, Russian Federation, 
is also co-parent, step-parent of North Korea. We might be in for a surprise or two. As far as to put boots on the ground, to send in troops there, we will suffer catastrophic losses in all likelihood compared to what have been suffered in Iraq and Afghanistan. And to go in shooting missiles to take out their nuclear facilities, their nuclear rockets, and so on and so forth, guess what? (laughs) They are located along the communist-Chinese border. Hmm, could that possibly bring communist China in? Well, they're going to be in it anyway, because that's their baby. They don't tell us that. They don't divulge this to us. But So it really is a thorny, thorny situation. The damned if you do, damned if you don't situation that we are not being told about. But it is lurking in the very, very near future as an extremely explosive time bomb waiting to go off in terms of however it is dealt with. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done, in case you joined us after the introduction. And... There are so many other things that should be mentioned with regard to that about dear old North Korea, communist regime North Korea, such as the war that they have engaged in now since since the end of the Korean War. North Korea has engaged in a ruthless terrorist war against Christians, against Christianity within North Korea to annihilate Christianity. I remember years ago, I was so disappointed. Not that I expected all of the best and wisest and everything from Billy Graham, because I had seen and heard enough to know otherwise, but I still was monumentally grieved that he and Ruth made a trip to North Korea. They were led around Pyongyang like uh, a couple mules uh, with a bridle in their and bit in their mouth, and uh, they were shown a couple so-called churches, one Protestant, one Roman Catholic. And even though they were unaware of it, they were duped into believing that there was freedom of religion in North Korea. Well, if they had looked more closely, they would have noticed that the congregations at the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church were one and the same. 
<laughs> they were taken from one church to the other to fill up the other one, and none of them were Christians. Kim Youngin, his daddy, his granddaddy, every one of them has had themselves deified, and they have had a trio, or you might say axis, to be worshipped in the place of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Children in North Korea are communally educated. And from the time they're one and a half, some advanced age like that, one and a half, two. And the children are taught, carefully taught, to look for the black book at home. And if they find the black book, or they find anyone reading the black book, they report on it. And their grandparents, their parents, their brothers and sisters are taken away to concentration camps from which they will never be seen or heard from again. These camps differ in very little respect to the concentration camps of Nazi Germany and of Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union and of Mao's bloody red China. The people are worked to death on starvation rations and kept in unheated quarters and life expectancy is very brief. And for doing what terrible things, for committing what terrible crimes, for reading the Bible, for being a Christian. This has been going on since the end of the Korean War, the so-called end of the Korean War. That has been a hallmark of North Korea for its entire independent existence. But Billy and Ruth, they came back and they declared that there was freedom of religion in North Korea, like they were carefully coached to do. More on the Grahams later on. I'm sure I upset uh, any number of people with that, but it just happens to be the truth, dear ones. Well, perhaps you saw that the day after my previous broadcast, so on the 23rd, well, wait a minute, it was recorded on the 22nd, you heard it after that. So on March 23rd, Dennis Voronenkov, Dennis Voron and Kof of the Russian Federation exiled living in Ukraine 
was assassinated in Kiev, Ukraine, shot to death despite the fact that he had a bodyguard. The bodyguard killed the assassin. The assassin did not actually die on the spot, but in the hospital. But Voronenkov was shot multiple times, including in the head, died instantly. And this assassination was described as a typical show execution of a witness by the Kremlin, which, of course, was under Putin's direction. This was at Putin's direction. Well, I'll have more to say about Putin's methodology, his political assassinations that he has engineered over the years, but it is also remarkably similar to the way that North Korea has operated in terms of assassinating blatantly and flagrantly those whom it deems problematic. Perhaps you saw this matter of this 15-year-old girl who was kidnapped, in point of fact, by a 50-year-old teacher, and lo and behold, it was described in the press as a teen-teacher relationship. A teen-teacher relationship, yeah. Not quite what it truly was, in fact, but her name is Elizabeth Thomas, and she's five feet tall, and she was kidnapped by Tad Cummins, who's described as six feet tall, 200 pounds, and who is 50 years of age in Tennessee. But, again, this was purportedly a romantic relationship when, in point of fact, Cummins had attempted repeatedly to seduce this girl. And he resorted to kidnapping her. but just so good for the media to report that it was a romantic relationship. I love the truth-telling media, don't you? Just outstanding. I mentioned previously about the attack near Parliament that happened the very day that I recorded previous program on the 22nd of March. At that point in time, as of that day, five people had died. Forty were injured, many of them gravely injured by this terrorist, Islamist terrorist, who plowed his car into pedestrians very near to Britain's parliament. 
and a policeman was murdered. And what I was referring to on that day was, you know, despite what Richard Curtis said about on the day that the planes struck the Twin Towers, there were calls made by the people on the planes, and as far as he knew, none of those callers were sending messages, giving messages of hatred or vengeance. It was all about love. Well, yes, yes. They were going to die, and they wanted, understandably, to confirm their love to their loved ones while they still had a very fleeting opportunity. But I mentioned, and, and so he was referring to this, when he goes to Heathrow Airport, the arrivals gate, all he sees, he sees love all about him. Love displayed by husbands and wives, boyfriends and girlfriends, old friends, and not necessarily in a dignified way and so on and so forth. And I just happened to mention, yes, well, there was a scene at an airport later, a later scene, which perhaps he took in, which was at Brussels International Airport. You remember the monstrous terrorist bombing and the horror and the terrible, terrible toll. And so here, on that very day, there was another Islamist terrorist attack in London, in this case, near Parliament. And a police officer was murdered, Keith Palmer. But would you say that it was inappropriate to respond to such things strongly? And if an Islamist terrorist or some other terrorist, communist terrorist, fascist terrorist, Islamo-fascist terrorist, is in the act of committing these things, is it appropriate to kill them? Would that be permissible? Or must we instead take them prisoner? Perhaps you saw about this bright, shining light of virtue and truth. This Drexel professor, he's an associate professor. And 
having a wonderful influence on the best and the brightest of American young people. George Chicarello Maher. Chicarello hyphen Maher. He's a professor of politics and global studies and so forth. And he is white. He is white. And he's anti-white. And he's anti-American. And anti-God and anti-humane and anti-everything else. But he's Caucasian. But he's anti-Caucasian. And he is anti everything associated with Western civilization, even though he enjoys the fruits <laughs> of Western civilization. I mean, he is so remarkably like a brother by a different mother, Barack Hussein Obama. It's just remarkable. But In any case, he is, in this respect, like the tweeter-in-chief, he is a tweeter, very big on tweeting, and uh, he has tweeted various different things. On December 24th, 2016, at 10.48 p.m., he tweeted, quote, all I want for Christmas is white genocide, end quote. Let me just repeat that. All I want for Christmas is white genocide. So says professor, associate professor of politics and global studies, George Chicarello Maher. Mm -hmm. And then to follow up on that, to confirm that he meant what he said, that he not only put it out there in the Internet universe, this PhD, who has tweeted and tweeted and tweeted and tweeted. This wasn't exactly some little experimental tweet. He does this all the time, and he has a large following of adoring, adoring supporters. The throngs. On Sunday following, he tweeted the following, quote, to clarify, when the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution, that was a good thing indeed, end quote. Okay, so let's put these together in a pattern. I mean, he has tweeted bunches of such remarkably insightful things as this, things which represent the core of this creature, the very core of him, his heart, his black heart, okay, his evil spirit. December 24th, 2016, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. The Sunday following, to clarify, When the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution, that was a good thing indeed. But 
when he was called on it, on what he tweeted on Christmas Eve, the white genocide tweet, he claimed, oh, well, that was just satire. No. He's an evil guy, and Drexel University continues to support him and to back him and to honor him and to reward him and to enable him. They are the enablers-in-chief of this evil, anarchistic guy, and yet he rants and raves against anarchistic regimes such as the British Empire and so forth. And he is absolutely joined at the hip in this regard and many others with Barack Hussein Obama. Not only his bloodthirsty hatred of whites, (laughs) oops, but his insatiable hatred of Western civilization, of Christendom. And he is going on indoctrinating these impressionable, foolish young people so that they also can influence this nation and this world exceedingly adversely. Well, Another tweet from this dear associate prof was that which he spontaneously, which tweeting typically is spontaneous reaction as we see from the tweeter in chief, the Donald, but that he was outraged, outraged when he boarded a flight and a passenger in first class volunteered his first class seat to a uniformed serviceman and observers seeing that overwhelmingly supported that were in favor of that demonstrated their approval of that. And lo and behold, this dear associate professor, he had a slightly different reaction of revulsion and hatred. (laughs) Made a violent tweet. But just a dear old fellow. Meanwhile, a couple black police officers... shot an, a white autistic boy to death. Now, I don't believe that they did this because he was white. It was a very strange incident indeed. They tried to pull his father over. His father was driving the family van. And the father just slowly kept on down the road to try to catch up with his girlfriend so that If they took him to jail, she would look after his son. Well, they pulled him over and they started shooting and fired 17 shots into the vehicle, killing his son. 
they were both men of color. And then you perhaps saw this about a a cold case concerning a young mother and her three-year-old daughter who were monstrously, brutally slaughtered in the most grisly case that this officer had seen in 30 years. Well, DNA finding, they arrested a man of color, uh, not in Columbia, South Carolina. This took place in South Carolina, but instead in Southern California, where he was. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, we will know. But perhaps we can know even now. Know even now that the evils in this world are not confined by race or tribe or ethnicity. There are evil within every race.